I spent four years in Dallas as seminary. I did my time in purgatory. <laughs> Turn to greet one another. All right. We've only allowed 60 seconds to be nice to each other. You're just completely ignoring me, aren't you? For those of you that are ignoring me, 60 seconds in our plan today for you to be nice to each other. <laughs> no, it's great to see all of you talking. Just a couple of things on the back of the bulletin. Uh, September 2nd, three weeks. I think it's three weeks. Anyway, that's our last Sunday in the amphitheater. And we finish our time in the amphitheater with a potluck. And uh, we go right over the hill here to the... Uh, um, pavilions up there, and we have a potluck, so information's on there about that, so bring something to share with people, and then don't forget the annual congregational meeting next week, that's when uh, members, you, get, you, you need to come <laughs> and vote on everything from ministry plan, budget, new elders, all that information's on the website, you can download it and look at, look at what we're doing, look at how we're spending your money. And uh, make sure you agree with it and come to the congregational meeting and we'll give you a report of kind of where we're going and what we've accomplished in the last year, how God has blessed us. He indeed has blessed us. We're very grateful for that. Um, this morning, I would like to pray. I've been struggling. I was talking to Nancy. I've been struggling uh, all week with, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the grand jury uh, indictments that have come out of Pennsylvania, the six dioceses with the Catholic Church and what they've discovered there. And um, I've been following for quite some time what's happening in the church at large, the Christian church worldwide. And uh, it's, uh, well, it's not new. Peter said in First Peter, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So this is certainly nothing new. But boy, oh boy, is there a lot of stuff coming out um, among our Catholic brethren and our evangelical Protestant brethren of Everything from pedophilia to sexual harassment. Um, it's not quite as obvious in the Protestant side of the church because it follows the contours of denominations and there's no one clearing place for all this information like there is with the Catholic Church. But what's happening is, is so tragic, or what's coming out, I should say. I honestly don't know much, how much is happening today. I don't know that. 
Uh, but you have Willow Creek in Chicago, one of the biggest churches that many of us have been connected to. We follow their leadership principles, and that church is uh, really, really struggling, uh, struggling a lot. Their entire senior staff and their board of elders just resigned because of uh, sexual harassment at a high level. And uh, you have the reports coming out of um, Pennsylvania with the uh, 300 priests and the uh, 1,000 children who have been victims in the last 70 years. They have credible evidence of that. I was reading today about uh, what's happening in Chile and various other places around the world. And you know, it's, boy, it just, it just breaks this. It just breaks this. You see, there's three, there's three groups of true victims. Obviously, the children. That's obvious. Another one are the, the women, mostly women, probably a few men, but mostly women who are victims of sexual assault, sexual harassment. Uh, I'm thankful that this is all coming out in the open. We can get it cleared up. But the third group are those that either have a weak faith or are just looking at the church and and thinking, how on earth could you trust those people? How could you do that? And uh, we have enough trouble as a church in a culture that is slowly moving away from Christianity. We have enough trouble, don't we? Uh, this just makes it hard to be a Christian. Don't be ashamed to be a Christian. Don't be ashamed. If you're struggling with some kind of sin like that, come get help. If you're one of the victims, come get help. Come get help. I want you to know that our staff and our elders are committed to integrity at the highest level, including our marriages, our friendships, our businesses. I want you to hear me say, I want you to hear me say, you have a clean pastor. I tell the elders that every year at my performance review. You have a clean pastor. I'm not doing anything that if Nancy walked in on me, I would feel embarrassed over. Let's try to live life simply. Life is hard enough without all this destruction and damage being done all around the world. And you know what? We all win as a church. Not that it's a win-lose game, but to use that metaphor, we all win when every church is healthy. Every church is healthy. And we lose when all of this stuff comes out about what's really happening behind the scenes. My son told me when he was 14, and I've heard it this week, again, from somebody else. He said, Dad, I don't know who, I don't know who to trust. I see leaders up on the stage and I wonder wonder what you're doing it's only, gonna, only a matter of time before somebody finds out we are committed to being people of integrity here at DCC I know the Catholic priests up the road several of them I know that they're committed to that I know that several of the pastors in the county they're committed to that as well and the best thing gift we can give this county are to be people of integrity and live our lives in a real way so let's stop and pray for that Father, if it disturbs us at the level that it is, I can only imagine what you must be feeling when you see this. God, I pray for the, I pray for the leaders, the pastors uh, in our own county. I pray that you would continue to watch over them. pray that you would, you would be with each of the churches here 
in Summit County, Lord, and help us. Help us to be people of integrity in our marriages, in our leadership, in our churches, in our organizations. And Father, I pray for those three groups of victims, that they're true victims. They're the result of something that has harmed them and hurt them deeply. I pray, Father, that in your wonderful, mysterious, supernatural way, that your spirit would walk with them and guide them. Lord, uh, I've not ever been through that, so I don't know what they're going through. But Lord, I can sense and I can understand at some level the hurt. So God, we just pray for your spirit to first of all continue to bring judgment to your church, to weed out those those leaders who, uh, it's more than sin, something deeper than that. It's a form of evil that they would hurt others so deeply. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your willingness to involve yourselves with us and engage us in our lives and bring about redemption so that we can come to you. Uh, help, help our church, help our nation, help our world. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in a series called The Great Reversal. Uh, we're looking at the Beatitudes and we're calling it The Great Reversal on purpose because we've done this every week. If you go back into the the time of ancient Greece, the the genre, the type of literature called Beatitude was already beginning to form. Blessed are the gods who are above all of this mess. And it didn't take very long before that type of literature began to move toward blessed are those who are wealthy or those who are in power. Uh, I told you it'd get warmer. Look at this. Just have to hang around. Blessed are those who are, in, who are wealthy, those who are in power, because they're up here and they're above this mess. And so when you look in the Old Testament, which parallels some of ancient Greece, you see that same beatitude beginning to appear with a slightly different nuance. Instead of blessed are the gods who are above all of this, they said blessed are those who find their existence in God. They find forgiveness. They find uh, everything. They find life in God. Blessed are those who, who live within the context and the presence of God because they're the happy ones. It still didn't uh, take care of the, the problem and culture of human value, the way we, the way we define value. And so Jesus comes along and he stuns everybody with the Beatitudes. We have, we've been reading the ones out of Matthew. They're also found in Luke, several of them. But Jesus comes along and turns culture on its head. And he said, no, not blessed are the gods, not blessed are the wealthy, not blessed are the powerful. Blessed are those who mourn. There's a long list of those. Blessed are those who experience every day of their life the poor. Luke says the poor, Matthew says the poor in spirit. Blessed are those whose very life existence is one of challenge because those are the true people of the kingdom of heaven and they're the ones that are truly blessed. And he does this with it. And he, that's really the power of the Beatitudes as he takes human values which the world despises and looks down on. He takes these human values and he gives them value which is not what the world does. Even today it doesn't. And so as Christians, we really stand out 
when we value those who are poor, poor in spirit, when we value those who mourn, when we value, and you go down the list of Matthew, all of them. Today we're going to look at peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, as with all of these Beatitudes, we've gone back into the ancient world and looked at how this idea started to form. And then we looked at what Christ did with it in the church and how it began to change and shape differently. So today we're going to look at peacemakers. So when you go back into the ancient world, you know what you discover? Peace was not quite the same as we've, we think of it today. Peace was simply the absence of hostility. It was usually, this, uh, most of the writings around peace occurred after a war ended. Um, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, is an example of that. And so what they defined as peace is blessed are those, uh, not blessed, peace was when you got rid of conflict. Not by dealing with it, but by oppressing it. Covering it up. So most of the time, in the ancient world, the world philosophy at that time was, was pretty straightforward. Um, you have what we want. We're more powerful than you, and we're going to take it. We're going to come take it. Then, depending on how far back you go into the ancient world, we may or may not have killed your men to uh, basically uh, get rid of the threat. But we're going to take your women, your children, your goods, and we're going to suppress your ability to rebel. That's what peace was. That's what Pax Romana was, the peace of Rome. It was a statement about how they controlled by oppressing all the foreign nations that they had taken. They suppressed their ability to rebel. They're now basically slaves. They're under the control of the Roman Empire. It's interesting, we're not in, a book in, in the book of Revelation in this study, but you, you have them holding uh, the woman, uh, holding the chalice, uh, and it says, the blood of the saints and martyrs is flowing down her hand. And so that was a well-known figure in the ancient world. Picture me coming up and saying, I just came back from New York, and I saw the Statue of Liberty. It all means something to us, doesn't it? And guess what I saw? I saw the blood running down her arm because of all the nations, if this were true. I'm not saying this is true. I saw the blood of all the nations we have oppressed and killed to get to where we are today. That's what the book of Revelation is saying. That's what peace was. That's how it was defined in the ancient world. Peace was defined by control. I can control you, and therefore your conflict is not important to me because I can control it. That's not peace. When you move into the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, you see a different concept of peace beginning to emerge. And it's the word you've all heard before. It's the word shalom. It's a very common word throughout, but it's a very powerful word, very significant in the ancient world of of Israel. Because it has this idea of, this shalom has this idea of wellness, of wholeness, what we were created for by God. What we were created to be was people who are really at rest with one another in our relationships and with God. That's why it's constantly connected to salvation. These ideas go together. Redemption. 
that God, our God, we believe in one true living God. Our God is in the business of bringing about in our world peace, true peace, where we are at rest with one another. We are equals together in relationship, resolving conflict. And so this concept of shalom, true peace, is a picture that the world didn't have. Their only idea of peace was to work more powerful than you, and we're going to oppress you and take away your ability to, to rebel. We're going to control you. So in the Roman Empire, you had Roman legions all over the known empire. Their jobs were real simple. Control the people. Control the people. And that's very different than what God envisioned in the term, in the idea of peace. So Jesus comes along in Matthew 5, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, but he meant something very different than what the world meant. Blessed, by the way, this is the only place this word occurs in the New Testament. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Those people that are truly committed to this idea of shalom, this idea of the wholeness, the best interest of another person. You know, many of you know I've traveled many places in the world and taught just finishing my 18th year of teaching overseas. So I've had the privilege of being in um, lots of, in, in several Buddhist countries and have taught former Buddhists as well as Hindu um, uh, members who have converted to Christianity. And I've had a chance to see it firsthand what it actually looks like, Buddhism. And I was just talking to somebody this week who is kind of dabbling with Buddhism, trying to make sense of it and it sounds pretty good on paper. In fact, my premise is that as long as we only focus on the peace, love, and happiness text, it sounds a lot like Hinduism and Buddhism. It's not till you get into the, the text where there's all kinds of struggle and tension that you begin to differentiate Christianity from Buddhism. And here's one of the ways you can separate them. Christianity believes in a personal God. Buddhism believes in an impersonal force. It's very simple. Pick up any basic book on Buddhism and you'll see it. So here's what that means in real life. As a Christian, I believe in the dignity of the human. In fact, we're the only religion that holds to that. In every other religion, you become something different through karma, reincarnation, whatever. But the core behind every other philosophy and worldview is that you lose your personal identity. Reincarnation, emission of a light source, meditation to become nothing. You fill in the blank depending on what you may have studied or experienced. But the, the, the key is that you lose your personal identity. In Christianity, you never lose that. We believe you're made in the image of God, a personal loving God, and therefore you have what we call dignity which is absent in the world. So when you begin to compare Christianity with Buddhism, what you discover is at the heart of Christianity is moving into the life of someone else for the purpose of helping them move to a better place. I've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of Buddhists all over the world. I don't have a single example of one moving into the life of another for the purpose of helping them. 
I do for the purpose of bringing about enlightenment or expressing karma, but the whole essence of karma, karma is not what you see in America. Karma is not what goes around, comes around. That's not, that's not what karma is all about. You see, what karma is really about is you are where you are because of what happened in the past. You can't change it. If you attempt to manipulate it, the future is changed. We don't believe that at all. There's not a single place in Christianity where we believe that. We believe just the opposite. We are here by design to move into each other's lives for the purpose of bringing about good. Bringing about transformation. Bringing about personal growth, growth and goodness. I've seen whole villages in India where they won't help anybody. Because if they do, their own personal karma is messed up. The best thing they can do is, is actually spit on them. Because they're where they are based on a previous reincarnation. If you try to help them, stay at the bottom of the cast. You see, they have to suffer in this life in order to go up in the next reincarnation. We don't believe that at all. At the very heart and soul of our religion, the very core of it is every single human has dignity and it's our responsibility to help one another. That's what's this idea, what's behind this idea of peacemaker, is that we are going to move into each other's lives for the sake of bringing about peace, resolving conflict between people. Remember when we talked about mercy? We said back in the ancient world, mercy was tied to pity, not compassion, and that there's a fundamental difference. Pity assumes a hierarchy. I'm glad I'm not you. Compassion assumes we are equals. That's what's behind the parable of the Good Samaritan. He had no idea who this person was, but he stopped to help. And it cost him something, cost him money and time. So we talked about the difference. In Christianity, we believe in compassion. We don't believe in pity. Pity is very degrading. Pity says, I'm above you. Whew, I'm glad I'm not you. Compassion, which is what the church, the Christian church, beginning in the Old Testament, introduced into the world idea, was that, that very simple message right there. That I have compassion. We have compassion on people because we are equals. We are equals. It's no different than peacemaking. Peacemaking is not peace at all cost. That's not what it means, because you know what? Peace at all costs is a very degrading thing to do. You're not even important enough to deal with the conflict, so I'm going to ignore it and do whatever it takes so that we don't have any more conflict. No, the very heart of peacemaking is just the opposite. It's stepping into conflict for the purpose of resolving it. Can't tell you how many marriages, I've been a Christian 40 years, 41 this fall, how many marriages I've seen that learn to survive on peace at all costs and they avoid the real issues. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. How would your marriage be different if you looked your spouse in the eye and say, what are you doing? Why did you treat me that way? Why did you say that to me? 
Why'd you act that way? And, and move into the conflict for the purpose of resolving it, not avoiding it for the purpose of avoiding responsibility. You see the difference? It's a very big difference. Blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5, 9, for they will be called children of God. You know what's really interesting about the word peace? Nowhere. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find the concept that this is inner peace. This is feeling good about ourselves. I feel peace about that. That's not what that word means at all. That's something we've made up in modern day America in the church. No, the idea of peace is the idea of gauging in someone else's life for the purpose of dealing with tension and conflict and sin. That's what it is. Listen to these words out of Isaiah. You can begin to get a sense of how God thinks about it. This is Isaiah 52, the famous suffering servant passage uh, that points to Jesus every which way you look at. Verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news who proclaim, say it, peace. Say it, peace. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. That's called redemption, healing from sin and brokenness. Who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Peace, true peace. Not arguing, not debating. You don't see it very often in our country today. We are a divided nation. And I know, I know from talking to you, our church is divided. I had one person come up to me and say, I can't tell if you're a Republican or a Democrat. We were having coffee. What are you? I said, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? None of your business. Ask me a specific question. How do I feel about domestic policy? How do I feel about foreign policy? How do I feel about military strategy? How do I feel about economics in our nation? How do I believe about this and this and this? And I can tell you as a Christian and a pastor what I think. But I'm not going to let you label me. I'm really glad that she couldn't tell. I can tell you with confidence that we should pray for our leaders. And I've said this many times, and I know I'm going to get email from this. Take your rhetoric off of Facebook. Get out of the fight. Get out of the fight and care more about the people next door to you. I've sat in coffee shops and bars talking to people, and I've had them ask me, you don't seem very upset about what's happening in politics. Not really. I have my personal opinions. I vote like you do. But I believe I have an authentic faith in a sovereign God. I'm not going to engage in the debate. What I am going to do is ask people, and some of you have asked, so why are you upset or happy or angry or whatever the emotion is? Why? Because of this. So why does that make you angry? Because of this. Why does that make you angry? Because of this. And start digging down below 
some of the emotions and say, what's actually going on here? What's actually going on that makes you respond the way you do? It's so easy to fight. It's very difficult to fight constructively. By the way, just a a word on the side for you marriages out there. Learn to fight constructively. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, come see me. (laughs) Nancy and I know how to fight. We're good at it. We're really good at it. But we're really good at fighting constructively. It's not something that just piles up under the surface. It's something that actually exposes differences and we begin to deal with them and sit down and say, okay, you feel one way, I feel the other way. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to find a happy medium? And sometimes it's part of negotiation theory where we both walk away a little bit frustrated. I had a friend say when you're negotiating, if one of you walks away happy and the other one walks away bad, that was a really bad negotiation. It's only when you both experience a little bit of frustration you get a little bit of what, what you want. Learn to fight constructively. This is being a peacemaker. It's saying to someone else, you are so important to me that, that whatever you are upset about is important to me and I want to know about it. We can figure this out. You know what I did? I just tied it to unity. We can figure this out. I just tied it to unity. Unity, by the way, is not unanimity. That's not what's behind it at all. You know, it's really fascinating being in a community church. I love being in a community church because uh, when you look at our elders, they come from every, every theological compass on the map, just like our congregation. You know, we have... I get up here, I have a lot of fun. I think, well, today... I'm going to torque off all the Catholics, but that's okay, because next week it'll be the Baptists. The week after that, it'll be the Presbyterians. That's our community church. That's what that means. We have everybody from every denomination sitting right here in our midst. And everybody has a different perspective of what's actually going on. For example, in communion, everybody has a different perspective based on their tradition. So our elders represent our church. I love having a theologically diverse group of elders. So we have those that are Arminian, believe in free will, you can lose your salvation. We have those that are, that are more uh, reformed, that you, you know, Calvinist, that you, can't, you don't have free will, you can't lose your salvation. We have everything in between. And so we, we have to constantly monitor what unity looks like. And it is not unanimity. It's something far deeper than that. Listen to these words out of Ephesians 2. This is Paul talking about the problem of the Jew and Gentiles. We have Jews and Gentiles who are estranged from one another. What we know in the ancient world is they didn't really like each other. A lot of rhetoric going back and forth. It's kind of like today, what you think of the Republicans and Democrats. Okay, just be honest, they don't. All you gotta do is pick up the newspaper and read it. For Christ himself is our, here's the word, peace. He is our peace. Our peace is based on Christ. Let's not forget that and not lose sight of that. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between these two groups, by the way, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new Humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This is called the family of God. 
So it doesn't matter to me what your faith background is. I'm just so glad you're here today. That's why I love you see me in the morning walking around greeting people. Where are you from? What I'm listening to is where are you from geographically, wondering how some of you could possibly live there, but that's your issue. But others I'm listening to, what church did you go to? Oh, wow, okay. So you're different than the guy four people down. He, comes, he or she comes from a whole different perspective. So he brought the two together, making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father through the Spirit. This is what peace is all about. It really is not necessarily setting aside our differences, but engaging in our differences in a way that's healthy, in a way that we can come to an agreement. Two chapters later, when he starts talking about, so what? What do we do about it? Chapter four, here's where he begins. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's right. So we've agreed as elders, based on our Constitution, if it's in our uh, doctrinal statement, we will die for each other. If it's not in our doctrinal statement, that means we can debate and argue all day long. I've told the elders, you can yell, you can argue, you can debate, you can even draw blood, I don't care. As long as at the end of the meeting, we all go out for a beer or coffee together. Unity. You see, peace and unity go together because the very essence of true peace is that someone else is so important that I'm going to step into their life to listen to what it is that's creating the conflict and see if we can come together in Jesus. That's being a peacemaker. Our world, nothing about that. Nothing. I, I don't know if we ever had it. At least we pretended to. We don't even pretend anymore. I think I've told you I've read the headlines three days a week for about a year and a half now, every day. Seven days a week. Three times a day, I mean. And we know very little about it. What a message we can send to the world when we learn to talk and live in peace. To really engage, not be peace at all costs, not to avoid conflict, not at all. It's just the opposite. To value each other so highly that we engage each other in these discussions and find out where we do agree and move from there. I bet you all agree that we should love one another. I bet you all agree that we should care for the poor. I bet you all agree that although some marriages fail and we will show grace, that marriages are important. I bet you all agree that we should parent well and love our children. Don't you? See, there's ways that we can come together on this. We don't have to fight over everything. We can be true peacemakers. There's nothing wrong with a good debate. Trust me, I love debates. I love good arguments. I just love them. I don't love destructive arguments. So what keeps you from being a peacemaker? We're going to come back to that question in just a moment. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you, at the very heart of who you are, you are a peacemaker. You stepped into our world to remove that hostility 
through your son. You stepped in the world, into the world, to bring about true redemption, to bring us together in unity, and to teach us how, how to be that way. We're called your sons, sons and daughters of God, because that's who you are. You are a peacemaker. Help us to be that way. In a world that is so caught up in hostility and all of the stuff that we're going through, Lord, help us to be the ones that lead the way. In a world, uh, in the Christian world, where so much sin and destruction has taken place, Lord, help us to, with compassion, reach out to the victims and to, to show love and grace and redemption to help bring about healing. Thank you for being a peacemaker. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and uh, take the offering. And we say this every week. We're very grateful.